So here we are. Again, perhaps. Experiencing all of the phenomena of the human mind and body and heart. In this container of retreat, of being quiet and introspective. And all of the challenges that come along with this kind of experience. It's such an amazing thing to be in this kind of realm, this human form and on the planet and especially in this place, it always kind of has me reflected so beautiful and quiet and externally this world, you know, really the natural surroundings, kind of surrounded by so much beauty and uh, And even internally, as Deborah was pointing to earlier, this quality of love that we all have somewhere within us. Ability to experience pleasure and yet it also seems to be the case that true happiness is not uh, our birthright. Just because we're born doesn't mean we get to be truly at ease and at peace and happy and content and almost no one is born and just naturally happy and well and peaceful in their whole life. Unfortunately, right? That's just sort of the way it is. That actually what seems to be happening here is that um, taking birth is actually a setup for difficulty having a human mind and a a physical body and that there's going to be some suffering and discontent and grief and difficulty. And I'd imagine that it's some form of discontent or another that brings you here. I'd imagine that if we were all fully content, happy and peaceful and free from suffering, that we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be seeking out teachings and practices such as these. Over and over during the time of the Buddha, he said, you know, I really just teach, you know, people how to get free from suffering. That's it. It's all I teach. It's the, the truth of suffering and difficulty and discontent, the reality of existence, and the path and the practices and the applicable tools that have the ability and the potential to free anyone that utilizes them from these 
difficulties that we create and that on some level we're born into. And I'd assume that on one level or another you know this already and I'm just reminding you and that you've been experiencing it today. The different difficulties of the body, the pain of sitting still, the unpleasant sensations. Or if it isn't the physical discomfort that you've been wrestling with, perhaps the emotional turmoil. These minds of ours uh, love to replay resentments. That there's something just natural about our psychology, our minds, that holds on to the pains of the past and remembers them. And so often when we sit down and look inside, we see all of the stuff that's being held on to. The resentments and the vendettas and the grudges and the judgments. I don't even think that we do it. I don't even think that... uh, You're choosing to hold on to your resentments. I think it's just a built-in mechanism of our minds to protect ourselves. That there's this confusion within our minds that says, that really hurt in the past. I better remember it and constantly remind myself about it so that uh, perhaps I can avoid it in the future. And it actually seems that our whole process as a human being is one of this sort of survival-based, instinctual existence. That our survival instinct is to lean towards pleasure and to lean away from and to resist pain. I'd imagine you see that in your own life. You prefer pleasure over pain, don't you? You might be asking yourself, why did I sign up for this painful experience of meditation retreat? He's right, I do prefer pleasure. (laughs) Should have gone to the hot springs. that we're born into a body that experiences not only desire for pleasure, but actually craving. And that experiences aversion and resistance to pain. If you remember your earliest memories of experiencing pain, and how there's just a, a natural survival instinct within us that says, I gotta get rid of that pain and push it away, get angry at it. And our survival based. instinctual level of of life, uh, totally natural, just the way it is. And the cause of all our difficulties. Our addiction-like belief in our instincts, 
in our mind, in our body, and this quality of just doing whatever our minds tell us to do. Hearing those resentments and believing them, hearing the judgments and criticisms, the aversions, the cravings, and being identified with and believing in these really just natural survival-based instinctual experiences. Now the deal is we are born to survive. That's the species. You know, we're in this survival-like, animal-like. If you crave pleasure and you hate pain, if you hold on to resentments and you uh, judge yourself a lot, you'll survive. In the miserable, asleep-like status quo of human beings, engaged in violence and confusion and the Buddha spoke about the stream in a lot of different ways but one of the ways was that the normal stream of human existence is an existence based on greed and hatred and delusion and that humanity is floating downstream, that our world is fueled by greed and hatred and delusion, that each one of us, that natural craving for pleasure is greed in its subtle form, that each one of us, that natural aversion to pain is hatred, in its subtle form. And the way our minds are wired to think about the future and remember the past and miss the present is a great cause of our confusion because we're not here, because we're not paying attention. We're not looking at what's true about this moment. We're so busy planning What's next? How can I obtain some pleasure in the future and avoid some pain in the future? If you just reflect on what you've been thinking about today as you're trying not to think. I'd imagine that if you boiled it down, what your plans that have been arising are, your memories that have been arising are, then in some way they're connected to what's going to feel good and not feel bad? How can I avoid the difficult situations and create pleasurable ones? without a great amount of effort, without intentional, volitional training, we will just sleepwalk through our life. From one pleasure to the next aversion, from one craving to the next Without mindfulness, we have no freedom of choice. You're not choosing if you're not paying attention. You're just doing whatever your habit, whatever your instinctual survival, habit-based formation has become. 
And we come here with some understanding of this already, I know. But I'm just reminding you these things. And we come here saying, like, yeah, this the status quo. I'm not so interested in it. I don't want to be asleep. I don't want to be just another normal, suffering, confused, deluded human being that is part of the problem in this world. I would like to wake up. I hear this Buddha guy has some good advice on how to wake up. The Buddha went as far as to say that to really transform, to really find the freedom and to uh, train the mind to experience the happiness that each one of us desires. That it's a form of, of going against the norm. Certainly, meditation itself isn't the norm. Sitting down and looking inside and bringing our attention back to the present moment over and over and over. Just this basic beginning instruction of present time awareness, breath, body. Difficult stuff, isn't it? Even just that, we haven't even, it's just the beginning. Just getting here. It's when you're here that the work really begins. But the work of getting here in itself is this internal rebellion against our wandering tendencies, our attentions natural tendency to be everywhere but here. Stopping over in the present for a little check-in. If something really intense is going on, if there's a lot of pain present, maybe that'll bring you here. If there's a lot of pleasure happening, that'll maybe bring us here. But most of the time when it's not really painful and it's not really pleasurable, somewhere else, thinking, about life rather than experiencing it. And the Buddha you know, talks about just this training in present time awareness. is a radical endeavor. Against the stream of normal human sleepwalking, and actually opening our eyes and being awake to, oh, this is what the breath feels like. Sometimes it's deep. Sometimes it's shallow. There's a texture to it. There's a temperature. Every breath is different. In order to even undertake this journey, what we could call the spiritual path, although it's probably the wrong terminology, there has to be something within each one of us that gives us confidence. And even reflecting right now with the assumption that I'll put on there that you wouldn't be here if you didn't have some confidence. No matter how much self-doubt you have. 
no matter how critical and judgmental you are of yourself or of others, there is some quality of confidence, you could call it faith, that has brought you here or brought you back if you're not here for the first time. There's some spark within you that knows this is a valuable tool and experience and a worthy endeavor. Many of us get that confidence from someone else. We see someone else that has done it. And we see like, oh wow, if, if they can do it, so can I. Sometimes that faith or confidence or whatever you want to call it comes from a, just a real simple direct experience. Something inside of you opens up, doesn't have anything to do with anybody else, and you know that positive change is possible, transformation, awakening. Sometimes people have this experience on drugs, hallucinogens. They see like, oh, it's more than just this survival-based material mentality. There's more going on here. Maybe meditation will help me unlock that further. The Buddha talked about one of his original inspirations and, and thing that gave him confidence was that he saw a, uh, a wandering monk while he was still a prince, a householder. And he saw this monk, a Hindu yogi, sadhu, wandering. And, uh, and he asked, he said, you know, everybody else is wearing, you know, these clothes and this guy's, what's he doing? And somebody told him, like, you know, that's somebody who is dedicating his whole life to trying to find freedom. And it was one of the first things that gave the Buddha confidence in his ability to also find freedom. And it's important to remember and to recollect and to reflect on what is it that has given me this confidence? Because sometimes we get into the doubt and we totally forget it, right? Get into that self-doubt or doubt in the path or whatever and we're just like, it's gone. So it's important to kind of keep that faith and that confidence and to say, you know, no matter how difficult it gets in this mind, in this body, in this world, It is possible. Once we have some level of confidence, which you're here, so you do. Even if it's gone momentarily or was gone earlier today or is going to be gone tomorrow. There's some level of faith that you're already... Uh, being carried by that has brought you to meditation and to studying the Buddha's Dharma and to training your own mind and heart to uncover that obscured compassion and love and awakening. And once we have this uh, confidence that brings us here, then quickly, and I'm sure you're already seeing and know, and I'm reminding you again of uh, how much effort it takes. I can remember in my early retreat experiences, I just sort of was under that delusion of like, all I got to do is get to the retreat and then it'll take care of itself. You know, it was sort of this like, I'm going to a retreat and then the retreat's going to kind of do itself and transform me. I was so disappointed <laughs> when I realized that actually getting there was the easy part.
and that there's actually uh, so much work that takes place. And I'm not talking about just in retreat. I'm talking about in life. But in this context, the great effort that it takes to connect the attention with the present moment, to allow uh, some level of friendliness and kindness towards our mind that is perhaps abusing us, these judgmental thoughts, these comparing tendencies, this sort of fear-driven mentality that so many of us have to struggle with. It takes great effort to let go, to break that addiction to our minds, addiction to thinking, and to redirect the attention from where we're used to being, which is in the thinking mind, in the judging, critical, craving, comparing, egocentric, self-centered, and to break that and just to take the attention from that mind and bring it into the body. Because we can only do it for, what, a half a breath at a time? And then, there goes the attention back to the mind again. And how tricky the mind is. Perhaps you've had the experience already of you're sitting there and you're with your breath and you're with your body and start kind of pat yourself on the back. I'm getting pretty good at this. I'm not thinking about anything. And how, you know, quickly we're back in thinking. Back identified with the contents of the mind. Rather than resting in the sensory experience, which is our intention in the beginning. And so then the effort of redirecting the attention again and redirecting the attention again. And perhaps hundreds of times in a 40-minute meditation, coming back over and over and over. And the effort to not only return, but to return without then using it as a bat, as a judgment. See, I'm no good at this, and everybody else looks like they're quite peaceful, and I'm not peaceful at all, and I'm ready to tear everybody's head off. And if they would just walk a little faster and they wouldn't breathe so loud and all of those thoughts and the great effort, perseverance that it takes to just be aware of it and not take it personally and try to be friendly towards this confused mind. It has helped me tremendously to realize that, at least in the beginning, my mind is not my ally. You know? That these judgmental thoughts, these critical, self-centered or or self-deprecating, are not so helpful, totally natural part of having human psychology. But when we take it personal, it's so painful. And so to kind of, for me, you know, breaking the identification with it and seeing like, oh, that's just what, after meditating for a while, you begin to know, oh, that's just what the mind does. I'm not even doing it. I'm sitting here paying attention to my breath, and the mind is judging me and you. It wasn't volitional. It wasn't intentional. It's just what keeps coming up. I didn't. Who's thinking that thought? 
It's in my head, but I didn't mean to think it. And just seeing how eventually the mind have a, has a mind of its own. And it's not so personal. And it's just the stream of thoughts coming through consciousness. I heard that the Buddha once said uh, around meditation and kindness and that it doesn't matter how long it has been that you have forgotten. Only how soon you remember. And that has been really helpful in meditation for me because, I, you know, that kind of when the mind wanders and the attention and you're in a fantasy and a plan, a memory, a judgment, of rather than, oh, superego coming back, I'm a bad meditator, of just realizing it doesn't matter that I spaced out again. What really matters is that I remember and I return and connect and resustain the attention with the present. The word that's often used in uh, the Buddhist Pali language for effort and, and uh, energy towards uh, developing wisdom and compassion is virya and or wiria, and it um, translates as vigorous energy or energetic vigor. And so when you're thinking about your life and your spiritual practices and your meditation, renunciation and ethical behavior, vigorous, not casual, not laissez-faire, vigorous effort. Because the stream is so strong. And I think this especially is true in the beginning. And when I say beginning, I mean the first 10 or 20 years of meditation practice. Maybe that seems like a long time, but I actually I mean that. At least the first decade of serious practice. You know, really, uh, the stream and the conditioning and the identification with the mind and the body and the craving for pleasure and the aversion to pain is so strong that in the first few years, it takes a warrior-like stance. It takes a vigorous, energetic commitment to break the habitual patterns and the ways that we're creating difficulty for ourselves and each other. It's not going to happen just because we want it to. It's going to happen if we really work for it, which you're doing here now. Now, the other thing that's also true is that there is a such thing as overstriving. There is a such thing as too much effort. So within this sort of vigorous effort, this constant returning, it is so important to bring in the effort to be kind, the effort to be non-judgmental, the effort to soften and relax into what's happening, and not a macho, stiff effort, but that a lot of our effort, a lot of our energy should be going towards being loving and kind towards whatever's happening. It's not about how long you can sit still. It truly is about how well 
you can be friendly towards whatever's happening, however pleasurable or painful it is. And so a lot of this vigorous effort against the stream, remember the stream is greed and it is hatred and it is delusion. So going against it is its opposites. So going against greed, obviously, it's generosity. So the effort to be generous, to be giving, to be non-attached, the opposite of the hatred and the aversion, obviously, it's kindness. It's compassion towards the pain we experience, not judgment of it, not resistance to it. It's acceptance that, yeah, life is painful sometimes. This body gets painful after, what, 20 minutes sitting still. There's still another 25 minutes to go. Pain is a given. Hatred is a confused reaction to pain. Compassion, kindness, mercy is a wise response to pain. It takes great effort to transform our relationship to pleasure and pain. Vigorous, energetic, intentional retraining and uncovering. And however crazy it sounds, it is true that the wisdom and compassion that you seek is already in there, in your own heart and mind and body. It's not out here in the Buddha. It's not out anywhere. It's not in the books. It's not in the, certainly not in the statues or pictures or definitely not in the teachers. It's right there in your own heart and mind. And this effort of, of training, this practices, is more of an excavation. It's more of a process of uncovering. And each time we return to the breath, and each time we soften and relax and are friendly and send some loving kindness, it's another scoop of the stuff that's in the way. It's another layer closer to your natural wisdom. To the potential Buddha that's within each one of us. So with this confidence that you have, yes, it's possible. I remind you. The effort, it's going to take a lot of effort. And you have it. You have the life's energy. We all have it. It's where are we choosing to put our life's energy. It may take some reorganizing as it has to come here for a week. And choosing, I'm going to put more energy and effort into this process than I am into out there seeking external stimuli. I'm going to come inward. I'm going to redirect my energy. And to know that uh, it is the balance of, of, of extreme effort and, and extreme relaxation. The Buddha uses the analogy of tuning a guitar, a lute, is what it was in his time, but it's a stringed instrument. And that you see, we see in our meditation practice, in, in, our, in our life, that if it's too tight, 
if life is too tight, if meditation effort is too tight, if the strings are too tight, it doesn't sound right. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't play right. It's a little bit like this against the stream analogy. If you've ever tried to swim upstream when there's a current, if you get right in the middle of the current and you just go straight at it, if it's a strong current, perhaps you'll stop going downstream. But you probably won't make any effort upstream, no matter how hard you wail away in the center. But like with the strings, if you loosen them a little bit, and in the swimming analogy, if you start to swim side to side, rather than going at it directly in the center, if you start traversing slowly back and forth, you'll make progress upstream. Not enough effort, you just get dragged away by the current. If the strings on the guitar are too loose, it sounds awful. It won't make any music at all. So in our meditation practice, looking at that, not too tight, not too loose. In our suffering, maybe I don't need to be in the center of it fighting it directly. Maybe I need to go turn it to the side and then come back through and then come back through. Does that make sense? These analogies. Ultimately, our effort is into developing wisdom and compassion as we're doing here. Present time awareness teaches us just about everything we need to know. Awareness of the breath and body it will teach you that all things are impermanent. Every breath, every thought that takes your attention, every sensation that comes in the body. You also begin to see that some of the phenomena is pleasant, some of it's unpleasant, some of it's neutral. We begin to see our relationship to the pleasant and unpleasant, how we get attached, how we get aversive, how we create suffering for ourselves. If we're paying attention and we're investigating with that intention of friendliness, the wisdom of compassion will arise and say like, oh, it doesn't work to push it away. The wise response to pain is to accept the given pains, and be friendly towards them, to be compassionate, to care about it. Present time awareness will teach us this. Eventually, it'll change our relationship to our own mind, our own body, to each other, to the world. The more we pay attention, the effort to return and return and, and be here. And it'll become more and more clear how uh, impersonal so many of these thoughts are, so many of these judgments and fears and plans and resentments. You begin to see that actually your mind is just trying to protect you by holding on to all of that grief and resentment. That the mind is confused and that it, you know, it doesn't know that actually the resentments are getting in the way of your happiness. Somehow this mind thinks that holding on to the resentments and, and the grief and the traumas is somehow protecting you. The more you meditate, the more you'll clearly see for yourself that the mind is just confused and it just needs to be investigated and treated with some kindness and uh, cared for. In Deborah's instructions today, you know, if we could care for ourselves the way uh, a good mother would care for her only child, 
if we could be that kind of kindness. And so to me, on some level, that means, can I be kind to my mind like I would be to a child? Or can I be friendly towards myself like I would be friendly towards someone that I truly loved? And this is our great work here with the great effort and the mindfulness and the constant returning. And it is true that there is a momentum that builds and that everybody has their own pace and that there's not one prescribed practice or for everyone. Everyone has their own karma. Everyone has their own uh, path. And some of you are going to progress quite quickly. And your karma is ripe and you're going to take these practices and suffering isn't going to uh, be such a difficulty for you. And for some of you, it's going to take longer. And there's no way for us to know but that there's a skillful means and that there is a practice. One of the reasons the Buddha taught so many different meditation techniques is because there's a different prescribed technique for different people in different phases of their practice. There's not one right answer for all of us. Mindfulness of the breath seems to be a good place to start for most of us. But it's certainly not the goal. It's only the foundation of the path to freedom. And freedom will come in its own time. Slowly over the months and years, for most, waking up and changing and is a gradual process. Some people have those big so-called enlightenment experiences, but very few, most of us just uh, retrain our minds and our hearts and slowly uncover friendliness and care and non-clinging and, and gradually suffer less and less and gradually experience the happiness that we didn't get just from being born. That was your first earthquake, Rich. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Maybe the Buddha's pissed. <laughs> or happy. Where was I? <laughs> and the earth will quake. If you suffer less. <laughs> I guess the last piece I want to say, you know, in closing is that the work that you do here on the cushion, however difficult it is or however pleasant and uh, wonderful it is for you, know that it's not selfish. And that the work that we do and the, the, the difficulties that we encounter or the joys that we experience, because we are relational beings, they affect everyone that we come into contact with. And you know this. You know what it's like to meet an unhappy, angry person. It affects you. And you know what it's like to meet someone who's happy and content and it's inspiring. Well, 
And so the work that we're doing here together this week truly is an offering to the world. It's personal on one level, and it's totally uh, for the benefit of all beings and will bring about the kind of changes that you would like to see. So I offer you all of these thoughts about practice and uh, the path and really in the spirit of contemplation. I invite you to contemplate these teachings and to not just believe any of it, but to investigate and contemplate and see what's true in your experience as you uncover your own wisdom as you respond with your own compassion, friendliness, and care towards yourself. And to ultimately know that you have the power and the ability to do what needs to be done to find what you're looking for. Let's sit just for a moment before we go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.